0: Hello and welcome to the Policy Dispatch, I'm Sam Morgan, your host and guide through the complex world of the energy transition. This week we're going to be talking all about the European Union's Net Zero Industry Act, which is its attempt to ramp up clean tech, compete with China and the United States and address climate breakdown. It has been labelled by some as a knee-jerk reaction to the US's Inflation Reduction Act, and instead of relying on similar financial firepower, it has put in its faith in streamlined regulation, including permitting, access to financing. Procurement rules. One of the biggest criticisms facing the NZIA is that it has failed to take into account the multitude of diverse viewpoints that are linked to this issue, and the sideline trade unions, academia, and civil society voices. It's one of the crucial pieces of the EU's Green Deal puzzle, so it is crucial that policymakers get it right. I'm joined today by Camille Maori, an expert in industrial decarbonisation with NGO WWF Europe. I spoke with Camille about what the aims of the Net Zero Industry Act should be, why the EU risks missing its chance to pursue a strategy that benefits everybody, and the problems that arise when we don't give everyone a say. Just before we kick on with the episode, it's time for the Policy Dispatch Quiz Question. This week I'm asking you, solar power is one of the technologies this act wants to boost. In 2022, the EU had a record-breaking year, connecting just over 40 gigawatts of solar. How much solar is predicted to be connected in 2026? Is it A, 55 gigawatts, B, 75, C, 85, or D, 105? Answer at the end as always, now on with the show. So hi, Kemi. Thank you so much for joining us on this, the Pol- Policy Dispatch. Uh, thank you for joining the show.
1: Hi, Sam. Thanks a lot for the invitation.
0: Been really wanting to talk about something to do with the topic of today's show, the Net Zero Industry Act, for a while now, because it seems to be really Um, really of interest to so many different people in different sectors. And I thought it would be really interesting to talk to someone in your sector, civil society, the environmental sector, to kind of top down look on this thing. Because when you talk to industry, you get a certain point of view. But if you talk to a different sector, you get something else, which is sometimes a little more interesting. Um, So maybe we can start. What actually is this act? What are its objectives as far as you're concerned? And um, what do you think about it?
1: Great. Uh, so maybe to start, if we want to tackle what is this act, maybe we need to go back a little bit and give some information about the context. Um, so, and explain the reason uh, why the Net Zero Industry Act was actually uh, designed. So if you look at the Commission uh, intention with this Net Zero Industry Act, it's pretty clear. The idea is actually to scale up the manufacturing of clean technology in the EU in order to achieve two objectives. So the first one is make sure that the EU is well equipped to achieve its 2030 emission reduction targets. And the second one is to boost um, its resilience. Uh, The reasoning behind the Net Zero Industry Act is also to create jobs and growth. So here I tried a bit to picture the European Commission ID behind the act. Um, When it comes to why we have this act, uh, to me it looks like this act comes as an answer to several crises. So we had the COVID crisis that showed that the EU was facing major supply chain issue um, with limited access to certain raw materials. Then we have the current geopolitical situation we are living in, which made uh, the EU member states realize that we are dependent on certain third countries, especially China for our supply chain and also access to raw materials. Um, I think it's also a realization of the fact that we used to produce a lot of what we use abroad in third countries. And this was fine as long as we didn't have political geopolitical tension. But now it seems that we have to change and we have to produce much more within the EU. Also the announcement of the U.S Inflation Act sorry the announcement of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act uh, led to the commission um, with the need to, to answer to it, especially from pressure from the industry. Um, so I think this is also like the third element of why now we have this Net Zero Industry Act. So to put it in the simple words, the primary objective is really to ensure that Europe's climate ambition is achieved uh, through an increased uptake of clean technology made in Europe.
0: And how do you rate the kind of focus that this act has had on these technologies? I mean, one thing that I think has become rather glaring talking to different people in different sectors is that, like with almost everything these days, energy efficiency is kind of either not there or is a a secondary thought. Do you think that that is the case here? Or are there things within this act that actually do speak to efficiency and saving energy rather than making it cleaner or more sustainable?
1: No, I think it's right to say that the Commission proposal really focuses uh, on boosting uh, clean technology, on boosting the manufacturing of clean technology in Europe. So there is actually another set of priorities and policy which are totally not addressed. Uh, everything which is linked to energy efficiency measures, everything linked to uh, the triple air, like reuse recycle and also um, reduce. I think this is totally not in this equation. And that's what is totally missing. And that's why why we say that this act should be more than looking only at um, su- the supply and how to improve like the supply of energy uh, production and also of clean technologies. We should also look at demand side measure and also implement demand side measure man- management in a way, so I think this is what's really missing. But you have also other things which are missing. In my views, um, this act is really not taking into account the fact that in order to shape, shape sorry shape, the EU uh, industrial policy, you need to have a holistic approach. So it's more than just having the actors which are like uh, talking about industrial decarbonization, it's also uh, taking into consideration other actors, like, um, the actors that we will need in order to, to understand the people that will work in those new industries. So trade unions, but also non-GAES actor, which will come with science in order to assess which type of technologies we should use to achieve the target, um, or 2040 targets. So those are like academic and also civil society organization. And I think this is a part which is missing. Mm-hmm. In a way, if I want to put it in a simple word, it's like we need an industrial strategy that is really linked to our climate ambition and that really should include um, different actors.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, just on the focus as well, there's this sports quote that I always think about with these kind of things and it's, you shouldn't just practice what you're bad at, you should practice what you're good at as well. And for things like energy efficiency and recycling and reuse, Europe isn't perfect, but it does have strengths there, right? There are a lot of companies involved with that, but then to see that the focus is so skewed towards things like supply chains that Europe has either lost or never been a part of solar panels or batteries or whatever, do you think that 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 is a mistake?
1: I think that it's not a mistake per se, but we cannot think of a industrial policy that has to go across the supply chain without thinking of recycling demand side measure and energy efficiency. It has to be linked somehow. So in a way, it's like a missed opportunity for the European Commission to to really design a holistic uh, European industrial policy. And that's what's missing at the moment. And that's what um, also is quite, um, let's say, striking for us, because you cannot achieve um, the climate goals that we have if you don't uh, shift totally the perception of how we produce and what we use and for what. So in a way, if you look at the supply, you should also look at the demand.
0: I mean, is this the, the European equivalent of the Inflation Reduction Act in a way or is it a different course for a different course?
1: So that's a very good question because um, this Net Zero Industry Act was actually um, developed in a hurry as well um, by the European Commission in a way of answering to the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. Per se, the Net Zero Industry Act is not the answer to um, the US Inflation Reduction Act, but it's part of the answer. Um, The European Commission announced um, in February a Green Deal industrial plan with different components and the Net Zero Industry Act is like the first pillar, let's say, of this answer to the US Inflation Reduction Act. Um, it was, um, announced together with the Critical Raw Material Act and also the Electricity Market Design and the European Hydrogen Bank. And the idea with this Net Zero Industry Act is really, um, okay, we will look now at what's the massive problem we have in order to deploy clean technology within the EU. And the answer of the European Commission was, well, it's permitting deadline like permitting takes too long and so on. So that's what they try to address within this act. But in a way, of course, permitting is not the only answer. And also uh, permitting must be um, dealt carefully. But I, I imagine we will come into that as well. I mean,
0: permitting is, of course, a part of regulation. Do you think that this act strays too far towards the regulation in a way? Um there's been a little bit of a shift of narrative recently. I think we've kind of seen it where different political actors are saying, you know, we need to put the brakes on certain environmental legislation, Germany with its car emission standards, um, the nature protection rules that was, you know, recently kind of cut down by certain MEPs. Do you think that this is a part of that kind of narrative of the only way that we're going to be net zero or hit our climate goals is if we don't have any rules that stop them from from clean technology from being ruled out, for example. Do you you think that this is kind of a slippery slope in a way?
1: Yeah, I think in a way that uh, the Net Zero Industry Act, as it was designed and presented by the European European Commission, really takes this intention of, okay, we're going to address the permitting issue. And in a way, yes, it is a bit linked to deregulation uh, because it can have an impact on, on environmental laws and also it can have an impact on everything which is linked to how we address um, the environmental laws within the scope of okay we need to have deployment of renewables um, renewable hydrogen for certain sector also heat pumps Uh, i think that's actually taken by many organizations that we need massive deployment of those. But those are certain technologies that we need by 2030. And I think we all agree that if there is some permitting issue linked to that, we need to address those. But this has to come with a strong impact assessment and also explanation of why at the moment permitting takes so long because in the current um, act which was presented by the European Commission, there is no distinction between the type of technology or manufacturing industry. Um, we have a line which says that uh, permitting takes between two and seven years, but we don't really know what is for two years and what accounts for seven years. So we will need a real assessment of why it takes so long. And also there is this misinterpretation. I think that uh, it's only because of administrative burden. But in order to have very strong environmental impact assessment, you need skilled people and it takes time. So in a way, You need to allow sufficient time in order to have those environmental impact assessments. So I think this is something also that the EU institution must communicate more on. And this idea of having um, put all the blame on uh, regulation is actually misleading because so far we have achieved a lot and we need to do much more in terms of deployment of renewables and also uh, heat pumps and some renewable hydrogen um, but in a way this has been done because and thanks to regulation and thanks to EU regulation and everyone is looking at the US IRA as oh wow this is magic but this is actually um, one uh, act or like uh, yeah um, like um, from the US administration that tackle um, climate investment but in the EU we have had much more already as well. If you look at how we have been doing with the Fit for 55, the revision of the UETS, the UETS Innovation Fund, mm-hmm. we have funding and we have money also to help um, our economy to decarbonize, uh, our industrial sector to shift and also um, help uh, take strong action to combat climate change. Yeah, you know, the
0: biggest—I think—the biggest part of the IRA that kind of maybe grabbed people's attentions was the sheer scale of the financial backing of it. You know, hundreds of billions of dollars, tax credits, important things that are you know too complicated for my brain to to kind of process. Whereas this act, to a layman, doesn't have that kind of financial backing to it. Mm-hmm. So where does the financing for this come from? Is there enough conditionality for the financing that is available, um, or is it kind of a free for all where you know if you spend billions of euros on solar panels and so long as your state aid rules are fine, you can do what you want? Or is it is there? Are there enough safeguards in place? Basically, the question.
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, the net zero industry act was not really designed in a way that you will have uh, the finance mechanism in it. I think this will come us also, you know, uh, at a later stage. I mean, everyone is discussing now about the sovereignty fund, how it should be designed. Uh, we will be um, supporting it. But within the Net Zero Industry Act, you also had the relaxation of the state aids. So also some member states, we which had the state budget, could actually Help their industry with this relaxation of state aids, so that's already part of the answer. Then you have all the idea of having deployment of of public procurement. Mm-hmm. then in order for this to function, of course, as you said, we really need like strong um, environmental and social conditionality linked to any more subsidies that we give mm-hmm. to the industry and also to the clean tech technology sectors. I think this must be now, uh, really thought through also at the EU institution level that, uh, subsidies, uh, of course will help. It will have like, it will help to take off the market and have some type of technologies that we really need to deploy. But it's not the only answers. You know, you need, uh, much more of, a, a funding mechanism that sustain in the long term. And for that, you need also very strong conditionalities. You need commitment from the new industry. You need them to commit to decarbonize, uh, at a certain stage. Um, what we were a bit surprised to see right now is that if you look at the commission proposal, um, everything is drafted, um, that we can achieve our 2030 uh, climate goal. And 2040 is a very important date. Uh, and the climate neutrality date or ideal date will be by 2040, we will be climate neutral. The EU uh, institution agree on like 2050. But uh, right now in the draft report from the European Parliament, this idea of achieving cut emission by 2030 is a bit scrapped with this idea that we will need any type of technologies by 2050. But here, it's very important to take into account the timing, because we need to do as much as we can by 2030. And that's why, in our views, um, as climate and uh, environmental NGO, what we think is that we really need to deploy the technologies that we need to achieve um, for achieving our 2030 targets. So some sort of technologies, we don't see why we should invest that much into those, okay. um, you know, because they will come maybe later. Here I'm thinking of carbon capture and uh, and storage, so CCS um, as a in the U acronym. Mm-hmm. Uh, here I think this technology will come um, a bit later in time. So we didn't really understand why in the reports. So it should uh, be more like a ranking. Yes, okay. we should have oh, like exactly we should have like the strategic uh, technologies uh first, yeah. like heat pumps, renewables and also renewable hydrogen for specific sectors. Those are the ones that we see. Yes, we need massive investment now and we need to we need to deploy them um in the EU. Um but, you, but, but those, the commission
0: always says that it's technologically neutral. It's like it's That's its kind of um, claim to fame. Sometimes, even if that isn't true, sometimes, is this act technologically neutral? Can it can it not be technologically neutral because of its inherent? Point.
1: It could be not technology neutral if we push, uh, you know, through the European Parliament now and through the Council with member states uh, for having priority uh, technologies uh, really defined, clearly defined, really define what is clean, what is not clean, where we should put our investment in the next. Uh, actually seven years because it's really going to happen now if mm-hmm. we want to decarbonize, uh, our industry and other part of the sectors. Um, right now what we see, uh, with the report from MEPLR with this idea of opening the list, mm-hmm. it could be quite damaging because now every, any type of technology could be part of this scope. Mm-hmm. Let's say when actually the first idea of the European Commission was to have a rapid answer. To, uh, to what we were um, facing, which was an energy security problem and a climate emergency. So it's also linked to the objective of the European Green Deal, what we should do for 2030.
0: Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you and maybe your colleagues as well, that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try a subscription for 30 days for just 29 euros. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe, or follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to the show. It does seem to have shifted from, like you say, a quick response to a big problem, two big problems. But now it's more of a growth industrial strategy for the next 30, 40, 50 years, however long you want to say that, those two objectives aren't really compatible in a way. I mean, in terms of coherence, is this yeah. act coherent the way it kind of stands? I mean, we know that it will be changed because of the legislative process. Is it coherent with existing legislation and other legislation that's also not finalised yet, like the taxonomy or you know energy performance of buildings directive, this kind of thing? Or is there a bit of conflict already between these things?
1: Yeah, that's also a very good question. And the fact that you mentioned that now we are looking more at a growth strategy is also a bit striking because, of course, we can have only limited growth. I mean, no, right now our growth has to be understood, uh, within our planet boundaries. And, uh, and this is something that, maybe is not really portrayed by this act. And maybe to go back to the first point as well, it's because we don't have an holistic approach. Mm-hmm. Basically, who is designing this is DigiGrow within uh, European Commission. It's also the E3 Committee within the European Parliament uh, right now. Uh, which uh, Exactly, exactly. And we don't have this holistic view of, okay, we really need to have on board over actors. Mm-hmm. And again, if we need to have an industrial strategy, it has to be for the people, it has to be accepted by the people, otherwise you will also have like social backlash. So you need to embrace uh, different stakeholders in the whole, whole design of the strategy. Uh, so like right now we we also see that uh, really it's just taken up by certain actors. Mm. So yes, and for the coherence with other policy, um, I think it has to be, if it has to be coherent with the or- European Green Deal objective, then it has to address the climate crisis, the pollution crisis we are in. Um, so this is really, really key. And right now we don't see that uh, environmental goals are at the heart of this policy. As you said, it kind of shifted a little bit. So we see competitiveness issue much higher on the agenda. When actually, if you want to build a resilient EU economy and a resilient EU industry, you need really to have the environmental objective as your main goal as well.
0: I mean, I only looked briefly through the draft report from the European Parliament that's been published now. And one of the first things I kind of went, oh, that's interesting, at least, um, was this idea of net zero industry values, which I think have been around for a number of years in different guises, whether or not they're, you know, three ports or something like this basically an area where you can kind of do where you, what you want to an extent so long as it fulfills certain objectives um is the principle of that something that you think there's merit in or do you think again that this is something that has the potential to be um counter to the objectives of you know the green deal and tip 55 and things? what do you think of that idea
1: so the, as as you said, the net zero industry valleys have been around for a longer period than just this draft European Parliament report. Actually, it was also in the leak of the European Commission uh, right. proposal and then it was removed. Um, so the idea is, yeah, to have identified... Uh, zone like special uh areas uh where you could have like a, a manufacturing industry or several manufacturing industry um in principle um i imagine this would not be a bad idea but it would really be uh, it really has to be done in a careful way for instance uh if those uh areas identified are like brownfield areas um that could also be like a good idea because then you like reindustrialize. You bring back uh, basically uh, value into territories which have been abandoned mm-hmm. in the past. But it also has to be done with the local population. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you need to take them into account and also ask them in the planning of those areas. Um, yeah, whether they see um, that as dangerous, it really depends also on which type of technology or of manufacturing industry we are talking about. So obviously, we have to have the local population involved. Um, As WWF, what we see is that for sure, we should not have Natura 2000 site identified as those net zero industry valet. That's a no-go. And also, if you will have to have those net zero industry valets, you will have to go through um environmental impact assessment. Those valleys should not be exempted from conducted environmental impact assessment. That's very important.
0: Ideally from your point of view then what would be the not the compromise, but they would have to do a one environmental assessment for the entire valley or you know how what, what would be the point of this valley from like the industry's point of view? If you could like see it from their side, you know, they they can get permitting quicker or they can get more funding. I mean what well, what is the actual um, benefit for them do you think?
1: Um, I would say that for any type of manufacturing industry they should conduct an environmental impact assessment that's very important and that's key mm-hmm. and we should not uh, scrap that because we identified the net zero industry valets. Maybe those net zero industry valets could be seen as a way of having like the population on board mm-hmm. um, having like um, yes, the willingness from the local population to, to maybe see those manufacturing industry coming in because it brings jobs and skilled jobs and quality jobs. So I think those could be, um, like the benefits. And also maybe you could think of those manufacturing, uh, industry, uh, being not so far from, let's say, the end user. So you will also have this maybe cluster approach and that would be beneficial for everyone, uh, in terms of of, okay, it will not, you will not have long distance in order to, to bring uh, the technology developed into from this manufacturing industry to the end users. So I think that's how we should think, but in a way, we should never think that any type of manufacturing industry should be exempted from conducting an environmental impact assessment. Um, and the same when it comes to identifying those net zero industry values. Here, I think what's very important is that it should not be only on member state shoulders it has to come with some capacity and help because what you will create is only extra burden on member states at the moment so you need to also have identified capacity uh, maybe with some help uh, extra help uh, for some member states because we don't know what the capacity now is in each member states so yes but what it could help, it's like having the public participation uh, and having like local population on board if uh, these net zero industry values are identified together with them.
0: Well, when we were talking about coherence with things that the EU is already doing, um, it immediately made me think of things like the Just Transition platform and coal regions and modernization fund, this kind of thing, that is specifically targeted towards these areas that either used to be industrialized or have never been industrialized, but aim to be. Um, Is there a lot of, do you think there's a lot of scope for all of those things to be kind of rolled into one to make sure that all of the good things that this act wants to do are done in the places that really need them and can actually benefit from them and will make life easier for everyone else because you won't be building in Natura 2000 sites, you won't be Building on areas that should be used for social housing, or you know, not more beneficial things, but things that are also beneficial for society.
1: I agree with you that the ideal scenario that you just described. But in order to do that, in order to do that, I think we should actually involve trade unions and involve the actors which are like right now talking about just transition, just and just and uh, fair uh, transition. And right now, it's not really the case. I mean, if you look at all the different. Public hearing we have, uh, had or like, uh, how there was no public consultation on that topic. And, uh, it looks like everyone is really only listening to industry actors, mm-hmm. uh, but not to the one that would benefit from what's happening. I think it's also maybe really important to say that, um, there is, there is no fear to have, uh, when it comes to Reindustrialization, if it's done in the right way. And here is because we are not listening to the actors that could help in shaping this. Um, I mean, that's the world that we are living in tomorrow. So we should be like several discussing what we would like to see and ideally where it should take place. So, yeah.
0: I mean, the, the fact that these issues are kind of being kept at arm's length from trade union civil society, as you say, what is the actual reason for that? Is it just a knowledge gap? Is it because it's just too much of a Brussels thing, as some people say? Is it because industry wants it this way? What do you think is the, you know, the big chunk of concrete that's between these two things that needs to be out of the way?
1: It's a question I ask myself as well because we have been around talking about industrial decarbonization for at least, I mean, several years. Um, at least at WWF, uh, we worked a lot on industrial decarbonization since 2019. We actually gave a recommendation to uh, the European Commission uh, industrial strategy in 2020, mm-hmm. also in 2021, post-COVID time. Um, so we have been around and I think we we have been identified as one of the actors. Uh, the same for my colleague working in different NGOs, the same for my colleagues working in trade unions so I mean I think they are like non-actors so maybe it's just this idea that this has to be done in a quick way so we will not consult everyone which is very damageable and that could actually create more harm if it's not done in the right way Um, so I think it's a matter of yeah time pressure at least that's how it was sold to us but in a way, uh even if you want to do a fast track process, you need to consult all the actors. And then maybe the knowledge gap, uh, I would say it's also the fact that yeah, when it comes to industry, it's quite um a topic which is taken up by one DG in the European Commission, also by one committee in the, in the European Parliament. And i imagine that they don't see n g o especially like w w f as one actor that could help yeah. even for as i was saying we have been involved in in produce in in providing um let's say um uh strong knowledge and expertise but also science based uh, expertise uh yeah since at least
0: two thousand nineteen so do you their perception is that you are just there to frustrate the the same way that environmental impact assessments are there just to slow everything down. I mean, you see quite often how um, the lack of workforce is highlighted. You know, We need more people to install heat pumps. We need more people to install installation. Do you think there's enough attention given to the fact that we probably need a lot more people to do permitting? We need a lot more people to do these assessments to actually write the reports, go out into the fields or whatever, and do that kind of thing. Do you think there could be a you know uh, a, an eu for permitting kind of you know something obviously better titled than that but the this is also a job creator this is also something that is probably future proof because we will always need assessments done because they don't last forever
1: yeah it's a very good question as well indeed like we need skilled force in order and skilled people in order to conduct those environmental impact assessment and apparently it's what is really missing uh, right now at member states level Uh, they have difficulty to hire like um like people and to have like extra capacity at member state level but it's also linked i guess to member state budgets uh, which is not infinite so i imagine that it's also linked to that so yeah it's a skill force uh, problem which can as you say become an opportunity If we give, uh, if then we give the the means as well in order to employ new people. So I think it's an opportunity, but it should also be then communicated that way. Because right now, if you look at how the EU institution communicated on the permitting issue, it's uh, actually um, identified as the big problem. Mm. So.
0: It's bureaucracy exactly when actually it
1: could road. become part of the answer and especially if it's done in the right way it must be it must be done in the right way and then it can be part of the answer because if at an early stage with the pre-permitting that we can do uh, or that promoters can do um, they can include local population then you have like less risk of uh, social backlash and then it makes basically the local population happy and they understand also why the project is for. And I think this is really a problem of communication. So yeah, it should be redesigned and, and thought through a, a bit more.
0: I mean, we've been talking mostly about um, an EU-wide measure and this will apply to all of the 27 member states when it's eventually, you know, law. Are there any individual countries, either European or even non-EU, that are approaching this kind of policy in what you think is a more sustainable way, or at least a more kind of way that achieves these objectives in a more holistic approach, as you say, that they they are approaching this in a way that is more in keeping with 2050 neutrality and actually addressing problems instead of potentially creating new ones.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also a very good question. I think there are like a lot of member states we can see good example uh, within. Um, but the main issue is that at the moment we don't have a clear definition of also what's green industry, mm-hmm. like what it really, really means. And uh, so far, I don't, I have not seen any member state coming up with a clear definition of what green industry uh, must look like. Um, there is the, um, the French green industry law that is going to be presented soon. Um and I imagine that they actually want to take uh, a lot of what has been deployed by the Net Zero Industry Act and also deploy this at national level. But once again, it's like, what does it mean to have, like, yeah, a sustainable industry and also to have this holistic approach and think about all the different stakeholders uh, that should be invited. I know that there was quite a lot of... um of critics um during the presentation of the um, of the project of the French uh, green industrial law because uh, again some stakeholders were totally not invited and it was presented again, um in front of only industrial actors so that's holistic approach. I'm afraid I have not seen it yet. And also, if you take, um, what's happening right now with our renewable, um, hydrogen strategy at the EU level, we also see a lot of renewable hydrogen strategy coming up at national level. Um, here again. Uh, it's pretty much taking into account only the views of uh, industrial actors in order to deploy renewable hydrogen for every type of uh, activities to decarbonize all the sectors where uh, we feel as an NGO, but I imagine also colleagues working on this topic, that we are a bit the leftovers and our views are coming in just after to assess what has been done and what has been said. But we are not really taken into account uh, in the beginning of the process at the moment.
0: Mm -hmm. Again, it feels like another opportunity where if the EU taxonomy hadn't been so politicized and controversial in the end and not really... Made anybody happy, this would have been a perfect opportunity to say, well, green industry is what is in keeping with the taxonomy. That's the end of the discussion. We've set this golden standard. But the fact that it is, you know, there are all these legal challenges against it now, people are not happy with it, feels kind of useless in this kind of scenario.
1: And I think also it's go beyond uh, what the taxonomy described as, as, as green or not, because the taxonomy also link it to investment. But when you think of, uh, about the green industry, you have to imagine the industry you want to have tomorrow. And this goes also with uh, the type of job you want to, pr- to have. Uh, it goes also with uh, what is the demand for the manufactured goods that you are producing. So it has to bring in also um, different elements. So it's a bit broader than the EU taxonomy. It's also creating the future you want to have and for what world you want to live in. And at the moment, uh, the green industry is portrayed as we're going to produce even more because it's green and it does not going to affect our planet, when actually this can be quite debated. I mean, there was in the European Parliament not so long ago um, a big event on Beyond Growth, the Beyond Growth Conference. And here it was, um, we had a lot of different conversation about, um, what, uh, what's the future, in which future we can, we can live in. And it came to me that one of the big word was, uh, we need to, to shift also, um, we really need to shift the way we, we produce. We need to have a system change, basically. And at the moment, when you hear like politicians and also with this net zero industry act, the idea is still to continue to produce and produce and produce. But just because it's green, uh, there is this misconception that it's not going to affect our planet, when actually uh, if you don't use renewable hydrogen in the right way it can be quite uh, damaging for our water resource our land resource and also quite uh, not good use of energy efficiency.
0: I mean just on, I guess to end the podcast just on milestones, we have the commission proposal which came out a while ago now, European Parliament's draft report is out, that needs to be seen by the committees and everything. Do you think that this The debate about this act is going to last all the way up to the European elections in June next year, because this is something that politicians will want to kind of use as part of their campaigns. Look, we have this industry strategy, it's going to create millions of jobs. And if you vote for me, then I'll make sure it happens. Or do you think that the urgency that we talked about will come into play and the EU will get this done quicker?
1: So um, as far as I know, right now, the plan is to have this fast track in the European Parliament. We have different committees involved with the ITRE committee, so the Industry Research and Energy Committee in charge, in the lead. Um, the idea is really to have uh, a plenary vote before the end of this year mm-hmm. in order to go into trilogue, so in discussion with the different parties involved, um, next year. Um, so we can imagine that this is going to be discussed in trilog either also uh, in a fast way or it could take longer because as you mentioned soon we have the european election which are coming up um the ideal scenario i guess is that we discuss what is very important uh, also in a, a pr- in a profound way, so that we actually spend the time we need for discussion, at least the institution spend the time they need to discuss, uh, rather than fast tracking it, even if it's urgent. Um But at the same time, this could be a good way to do that is by really identifying like the key uh, strategic technologies that we need and maybe not uh, allowing all those strategic technologies that we are seeing now in the stacks uh, to be uh, deployed. So really, really identify the priority ones. Uh, maybe that's something that the institution could agree on in order to to have this done before the EU election. Um, yes, um, I mean from experience, trilog can take some time, but it can also be uh, let's say uh, done in a short time if there is an agreement. Um, among member states, but from what we see right now, also with some of the proposal from the European Parliament, maybe member states, they will need to discuss a lot. Um, I'm thinking about the idea of also using 25% of the ETS revenue to finance this, uh, this, uh, yeah, scale up mean, of yeah, clean technologies. love to
0: be told how to voilà. spend their, their money. So <laughs> exactly. I'm sure that won't be controversial at all. So I think, based, can we basically say that this whole issue that it should be about quality, not quantity? Exactly. That's a great place to stop, I think. Um, it might even be the title of the episode, who knows. Um, Camille, thank you so much for joining the episode. It's been really interesting to talk about this with someone who isn't part of the industry because they will have their say. They have had their say. As you say, they were part of um, the process of drafting this thing. Um, and it really is important to hear from everybody involved, rather than just a few smart So thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks so much for the invitation and for the great discussion.
0: Today's episode is a good reminder that coming up with industrial strategies is an extremely difficult task, given the diverse number of factors at play. For more coverage of these issues, you need not look any further than foresightdk.com and our dedicated journalism. Now, before the chat, I asked you, how much solar is expected to be rolled out in 2026 in the EU? 55, 75, 85, or 105 gigawatts? The correct answer is 85 gigawatts, according to Solar Power Europe. The real answer could well then be much higher, of course, as solar is one of the energy technologies most adept at smashing even the most optimistic of predictions. Many thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We'll be back again very soon with another trip through the world of the energy transition.